some uh, researchers refer to houses haunted by ghosts as hauntings, and then poltergeist events they refer to as infestations. Ladies and gentlemen, There's often great thumping noises on the walls of dwellings or, or other buildings, rappings and, and poundings and eerie scratching that, uh, that appear to come from inside the walls and even inside solid wooden tables, for instance. Another hallmark is stone falls. Holdecai seems to be crazy about stones. So showers of stones that occur outside but the weirdest thing is stone falls inside. A levitation of uh, other objects, certainly plates, knives, forks, um, any number of things. As he entered the kitchen, a knife uh, lifted up off the microwave and flew across the room straight for his chest and uh, stopped in mid-air in front of his chest and dropped on the floor. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 9. And tonight on the program, we have a really remarkable guest, a really remarkable topic, and a throwback in a lot of ways to uh, the early years of Banal of America, way back in April of 2007 during BOA Audio Season 2. We had our guest tonight on the program along with his co-author and we talked about his book covering the Yowie, Australia's Bigfoot, and it really kind of opened my eyes to the potential stuff we could do on this program. I mean, here was a, a marathon conversation about Australia's Bigfoot that was just compelling stuff, highly informative, a real uh, revelatory conversation, and that was, you know, eye-opening for me. I was like, there's so many avenues we can go down with this program. And, and I've recommended that episode to so many people, and, and I was very fortunate that this past fall, I just received an email out of the blue. I think it, uh, I think it's the, it's the trickster element there. The, uh, the cosmic prankster sent me an email and it was, uh, Tony Healy. And he said he had a new book out with Paul titled Australian Poltergeist. And I was like, man, I, how has it been so long since I talked to you in the first place? I was completely blown away and, and then thrilled because I was like, wait a minute, you're the Yowie guy. You've got a, you've got a poltergeist book. Then I find out he's, he's deep into the poltergeist stuff. And I was so amazed by the Yowie book and the Yowie research that him and Paul did that I was, that I just, just devoured this book because it's of the same quality, even deeper in a lot of ways because they, as you'll find out in this conversation, they go into a, uh, a poltergeist, uh, I don't even know what you'd call it, a poltergeist house, a house with a poltergeist, uh, at one point. And, uh, and we're going to get into all that. And I'm very excited. I love the book. It is absolutely fantastic. Australian poltergeist, the stone throwing spook of Humpty Doo and many other cases. Tony Healy, welcome back to BOA Audio. It has been far too long, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation, my friend. Oh, 
I'll add it, Jim. Yeah, look, thanks for having me back on, mate. Uh, I uh, remember uh, how much fun it was talking to you last time. And uh, thanks very much for your kind comments about the new book. Oh, man, it's absolutely amazing. What I really like about it, i got to put it over now so I don't forget, is that it is, it's just jam-packed with cases. I mean, there's, there's the, the, the sort of like the first uh, three quarters is, is really in-depth examination of cases. And then the, uh, the final quarter is, is just this litany of amazing Australian poltergeist cases. So if you're, if you're kind of going through the book and you're like, oh, there's five, all right, whatever. By the time you're done with the book, you've, uh, how many total would you say are in the book? You must, uh, you must know that. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, 50, isn't it, or 51? Uh, there you go. So dozens, dozens of yeah. <laughs> dozens of cases are in there. Yeah, oh, for sure. It's for amazing sure. stuff. It's mind-boggling. Yeah, spanning like over over a century of uh, of Australian history. So it's it's absolutely jam-packed. And what I like about it is the spirit of the book in a lot of ways, too. What you say in the book, you and Paul, is that, you know, you want this book to be used by future researchers and stuff like that. So you put all, all that you had in there, and I really I respect and appreciate that. You sort of had an eye toward the, the future, maybe distant future, with the book. So it's uh, it's definitely one that belongs on everybody's bookshelf. Oh, great. Yeah, no, thanks for that. Uh, yeah, yeah, we were hoping that it might become a, a bit of a source book for future researchers, be they um, true believers like us or um, folklorists or uh, even... Uh, militant skeptics, we don't mind. Uh, we just put all the material in there and uh, we say, well, as far as we're concerned, uh, the poltergeist stuff definitely occurs because we've seen it happening. Mm. And uh, some of our eyewitnesses are just rock solid, hundreds of them. So, um, yeah, as you say, it's all there. Um, all i got to do is um, take the time to look at it. Um, yep. Yeah, they should. They absolutely should. Um and I just, uh, just, to, just to sort of backtrack a little bit, just to plug the uh, the Yowie book. That one's called The Yowie in Search of Australia's Bigfoot. And you've also got Out of the Shadows, Mystery Animals of Australia, which we, uh, we've we never done a show about, but we'll have to do one definitely in the future because uh, that sounds awesome. Now, it's been way too long, as I said, since we had you on the show. So bring us up to speed. Who is Tony Healy? Catch the newcomers up. You know, to your bio, your background, and, and then let us know about, uh, especially I'm interested in, how did, like I said, when we first, uh, when I first introduced you here, you know, I thought you were just a Yowie researcher, and I'm amazed. I mean, we talked for like two hours about Yowie, like seven years ago, and I, we never even got into poltergeist as far as I can recall, and all this time you were doing poltergeist stuff too. So, how did, how did all these sort of streams cross in a way? So give us all that information, the bio, the background, and how, this uh, this research evolved into all the different areas. Well, I, I guess it's uh, it's just one of those um, hobbies that got uh, got completely out of control. Uh, <laughs> started off harmlessly enough. Uh, when I was about twelve years old, I read a book about the Loch Ness monster, and I thought, oh boy, um, it would be great to get over there and have a look for that thing. But uh, I couldn't imagine in those days that I'd ever to get to do it, but I've been over there um, four times now on expeditions. Oh, nice. Uh, and um, visited um, oh, about 45, probably getting on to yeah, nearly 50 different lakes around the world that have similar um, uh, legends and um, modern reports. But, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, America's uh, to blame partly too for my, <laughs> my lifestyle because I was working in uh, Canada in um, 1969-70, um, just up in British Columbia there, and um, uh, of course I heard about the Sasquatch, and um, it's 
think to me that some of the um, my fellow, I was in a logging camp, and uh, some of the fellows there, they they obviously believed it. And then I realised the local Native Americans there um, also had a strong belief in it. And uh, so I got the bug, and um, uh, I returned to Australia and uh, saved my money and uh, went on a two-year round-the-world monster safari. Uh, nice. The big three of monster them were, yeah, were in my sights. The um, the Bigfoot, um, the Loch Ness monster, and and then the Yeti in Himalayas. But of course, as as you know, Tim, there are there are many other cryptozoological mysteries mm, around absolutely. the world. Absolutely. So I um, I visited several countries on that trip and um, uh, obscure places like Andros Island in the Bahamas, uh, looking for a kind of a a medium foot, I suppose you'd call it, about a five foot tall weight. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, that, that kind of got me started. And um, uh, on my return from that trip, I ran into Paul Cropper, my um, my colleague in Coalwater, uh, down at um, Kangaroo Valley uh, in New South Wales, um, where there was a, um, a Black Panther outbreak. Uh, as you know, there's no big cats supposedly in Australia, but um, sheep and uh, and even horses were being killed by this great big black panther that people were seeing. An ABC, so, um, right? ABC, that's it, mate. Yeah, the old alien big cats. And uh, <clears throat> I had a, I already had a, had a slim file on the cats at that stage um, because actually, I'm just flashing back for a minute. I, I saw what looked like a an American mountain lion in Queensland um, way back in 1965, but I um, I, I couldn't believe my eyes at the time. I, I thought I must have had an hallucination because it was just beside the road, you know, as we were driving at night. And, yeah. Uh, anyway, I dismissed that. Um, but um, in Australia, we have the big black cats reports and um, sandy-coloured ones like American mountain lions. Uh, so that's uh, another big thing, and uh, we have water monster stories here too, uh, a little weaker than, than the ones in North America and uh, Scotland and so on. Mm. But um, yeah, so it's, it's something that's grew and grew, and um, uh, slowly, I guess, Paul and I, well, we, we had an interest in, uh, mutual interest in, in ghost stories, and um, then uh, on one of my monster hunting Journeys. I uh, I dropped in at uh, a house at um, uh, Gyra in northern New South Wales that mm. had been the site of a um, an infamous poltergeist episode in 1921. So that was the first poltergeist house that I'd visited, and uh, so we started to accumulate a file. Paul got really really skilled at digging up old colonial era cases, and then by sheer chance, um, bit of a long story in itself. We um, managed to um, uh, embed ourselves, as as, you, as they say in the paper these days. We, <laughs> we got embedded in the middle of a, a, a huge poltergeist episode um, at, a, at a rural property um, at Humpty Doo in the Northern Territory in 1998. Mm. So that really got us going. So anyway, yeah, and that kind of oh, well, a brief, brief, <laughs> a brief kind of sketch of how Paul and I uh, got into all this, I suppose you'd say. Yeah, yeah, and then it just sort of uh, culminated here with this book. 
Australian yeah. poltergeist. It's uh, we'll we'll get into the Humpty Doo thing. I wanted to cut you off there because I was afraid you were going to start telling that story because uh, that's just uh, I have millions of questions and really <laughs> that's a, oh, that, sure. that's a, yeah. a stunning uh, a stunning case. Before we get into that, let me just see here. Well, we want to, I feel, always feel compelled, you know, we have the newcomers to the audience, we have the people who maybe, you know, maybe, you know, I, I was kind of thinking about it actually as I read this book. I was like, you know, I thought I knew a lot about poltergeists, but really I only knew what I thought was, what I thought I knew. I guess that might be the best way to put it, you know. I learned a lot more about what the, the Pulse research community, let's say, uh, knows about these things. And it's a lot more than I previously had known. So let's just give people the thumbnail, catch them up to speed for the newcomers in the audience, you know. Give us, uh, you know, give us the basics on poltergeists so then we can really dig into the entire, uh, you know, milieu you've presented here. Okay. Well, um, uh, the, the term poltergeist is an old German uh, term meaning uh, a noisy ghost, a noisy spirit, geist ghost, you know, hmm. spirit and uh, polto is knocking or noisy. And um, the way these things seem to differ from, shall we say, ordinary hauntings, uh, that um, there's often great thumping noises on the walls of dwellings or, or other buildings, uh, rappings and, and poundings and eerie scratchings that, uh, that appear to come from inside the walls and even inside solid wooden tables, for instance. Mm. Uh, and um, uh, another hallmark is um, stone falls. Poltergeist seem to be crazy about stones. Uh, showers of stones that occur outside uh, in the outdoors uh, during daylight and at night uh, out of a clear sky. No one can see where these things are coming from. But the the weirdest thing is stone falls inside, which we experienced at Humpty Doo. The stones seeming to appear just under the ceiling and um, raining down. Paul got a shower of stones on, on his head. Um, that, that um, uh, yeah, So you have the showers of stones, a levitation of uh, other objects, mm. uh, including heavy furniture sometimes, but certainly plates, knives, forks, um, uh, any number of things, buckets. We had one case where um, it was very much like the um, the Sorcerer's Apprentice um, scene in um, Walt Disney's Fantasia, where the um, buckets and mops and brooms were dancing around in a um, a dairy, a milking shed. Uh, but um, uh, sometimes the most eerie, creepy uh, poltergeist cases involve um, uh, disembodied voices. Mm, yeah. uh, now we only have one case like that in our Australian files and we call it the creepiest case of all. We call it the cold baggy bogey from <laughs> oh, yeah. the 1880s, I think it was 1887 or 89, but that was a creepy one. Uh, it was very similar to the infamous uh, Bell Witch case in, in America in the um, mm. 1829-1830s and uh, another an amazing case uh, called the Dag Poltergeist from um, uh, Canada, Eastern Canada, Quebec, I think. Uh, yeah, but um, yeah, so um, some researchers say, look, there's no real dividing line between poltergeists and ordinary hauntings. Um, you know, ordinary hauntings involve the 
the sighting of a uh, kind of a, a foggy figure of a, a person, sometimes translucent, sometimes sometimes fairly solid. Um, phantom footsteps, um, uh, rattling of chains. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all that, all that good. But, Ghost stuff, but yeah. yeah, the um, the poltergeist is essentially um, objects flying around. But but the thing is that um, uh, we've noticed in the Australian cases and um, other people overseas who've been into these things for years uh, have noticed that um, sometimes poltergeist cases can sort of transform over over a few years or a few months into a more like a conventional haunting. Right. And vice versa. Sometimes a conventional haunting can become more and more violent and uh end up like a poltergeist case. So right. I hope that's uh you know, more or less uh, enough info for you. Yeah, yeah, that's the gist of it. Seems like the, the uh the critical part of the whole poltergeist thing is this kineticness of it all. You know, the kinesis, the things that are things that things are moving around. Whether we don't know exactly how they're moving around, but it's uh that's the critical part. Things are moving and things yeah. are you know, it just seems to revolve around objects a lot most of the time. And it's very you know, that that, that that's yeah. the intriguing part of it all. And it's it, when you really think about it, it's like you I, I see the argument of the you know, of some of the people in the community or whatever you want to call it, but it's to me, I feel like the poltergeist has to kind of stand alone, separate from ghosts, because by its very nature, by its very name, it's it's a it's a specific thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Well, I guess you'd have to say, well, yeah, by its very name, as you said, it's a poltergeist, and not just an ordinary ghost. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Type right. Right. Of haunting. Yeah. Some uh, uh, researchers refer to. Houses haunted by ghosts as hauntings, and then poltergeist events they refer to as infestations, oh. which just sounds pretty sinister, and uh, they can be certainly sinister. It's like they infest the house. That's a yeah, that makes sense now actually, because I've heard stories and people say things like uh, you know, about infested houses, and, and when you hear the story, you're like, wait, that's just a poltergeist. So yeah, it makes sense. Like I was gonna say, sort of. The, to follow up on the just the point about how it kind of stands alone, just the fact that it over time has has sort of solidified into the name Poltergeist. You know what I mean? It's not just it's not just like some throwaway thing. It just kept re- repeatability factor sort of comes into play here, and you're like, okay, clearly history has shown us that this is some kind of thing. So this is, you know, for the people that's like, oh, it's not real or whatever. It's definitely real. Whatever it is, we don't know exactly what causes it, but it's definitely like something that happens. Yeah. Otherwise, it wouldn't still be around after all these years. That's true, Tim, yeah. Yeah, the sounds have been recorded um, on several occasions and analysed, and, and the uh, results are quite interesting. Uh, mm. uh, the uh, the uh, printouts from the... Uh, what's the word? Uh, the, uh, from the, the sound recordings um, are um, proved to be very different from ordinary wrappings. If you bash a wall and record yourself and record the sound, it, uh, the printout uh, comes out in a certain form, but the um, poltergeist um, sounds are radically different. Uh, I'm not technical enough to just uh, recall off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. They are different, but, but we, uh, we summarize these findings in the book. Mm, yeah, um, something involving the rods and yeah. cones. <laughs> yeah, but... 
Uh, of course, the other, you know, the other um, one of the other classic hallmarks of, of well, of many poltergeist cases is that um, there often seems to be a um, adolescent child uh, at the epicenter of all the poltergeist attention. Mm, right. Um, uh, usually a girl, sometimes a boy. Uh, sometimes it's not an adolescent. It might be a troubled adult or, or just a seemingly ordinary adult that for some reason the uh, poltergeist concentrates on this person. Uh, there's all kinds of theories, unprovable I suppose. Um, uh, there's theories that these people are, are natural mediums, that they're very psychic. They may be aware of it and they may not be aware of it. Uh, they're usually very frightened of course um, by what's happening and they wish it didn't happen. Mm. But um, uh, so some, a lot of poltergeist researchers and casual observers say, oh, well, either these kids are faking it somehow, which is totally unbelievable, I think, in, in many of our cases, um, or that those troubled individuals are somehow moving the objects themselves unwittingly via um, psychokinesis or telekinesis, mm. you know, mind over matter. They, they get all hung up about the school exams or something and then suddenly um, chairs fly across the room. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, they're, 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 you can make a good argument for it, except that uh, in many cases there is no um, adolescent child at the epicenter and some of the cases don't focus exclusively on one particular person. They... Um, in, as you would have noticed in our second case there, the Mayanup poltergeist from Western Australia, that's mm-hmm. our strongest case by far, even better than the Humpty Doo case, that poltergeist or poltergeists started um, by focusing on a, an Aboriginal family that was working on a, a huge um, grazing property and then um, uh, hooked on to some of the relations that came to visit to comfort them, and then it was operating in, in two diff- on two different properties. Then it followed some other people to a third property, 150 kilometres away, and it was going like hell for leather on three of these properties. <laughs> yeah. And then it stopped on the on the farthest property and began on a, a, a fourth property uh, to the south of the two original ones. Um, so. It wasn't, uh, as you can see, it, it wasn't focused on one particular person, at least not exclusively. Uh, and uh, that, that case went on for many years. In fact, it's, it's still going in a, in a weaker and uh, modified form even today. So. You mentioned, you bring up the other sort of uh, pillar of the poltergeist, and that's the, the sort of the the suspicion, let's say, of that there's some kind of uh, disaffected youth at the center of it. It's kind of remarkable, too, as reading the book. It's like people, it's, it's like that idea is so stuck in people's heads now, too, that they immediately go to, like, to like blame people. Do you know what I mean? It's very, it's unfortunate yeah. in a lot of ways, because in modern times, this sort of, this kind of thing happens in a house or something, because people think that, they immediately are like, it's your teenage daughter, man, she's all crazy, and that may not necessarily be it. It's kind of scary. Uh, it's, like the, it's like the witch trials, kind of. Yes, yes, um, that's right. Um, well, and certainly in some of our cases, and many overseas cases, the uh, local authorities have um, 
um, grill the um, you know the, the person that seems to be the focus. Some mm. poor unfortunate kid, they're giving the kid the third degree and um, demanded that they uh, confess that they've hoaxed everything. A kid has another breakdown, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's uh, really uh it's really weird. Yeah, it's just the human element of the phenomenon is is bizarre like that. And uh the other part that was interesting that I kinda wanted to bring up from what you were just saying is like to your credit, you guys do publish some cases that turned out to be hoaxes in the book and and I appreciate that yeah. and respect that. So that's awesome that you guys do that. And that, but then when you look at the the more fantastic cases, it's like I just scoff at these skeptics and the non-believers and that, that something's happening here because they, they think that someone could hoax this stuff. The sheer logistics of it just make it impossible for someone to hoax this stuff. It's just, and if they actually did the research or like read the stuff or looked at it or, or really, I guess it's the believability yeah. thing, you know, they just can't believe it. But it's like if these plates are flying out of, of a cabinet, you know, in perfect yeah. formation, you know, this teenage kids doing this, they, they should be doing better things than that. <laughs> you know, they should be getting in trouble with these abilities, not, not, uh, making plates fly out. But that's the thing. It's like, there's no way that, that, that this is just some prankster doing this stuff. Or human yeah, prankster, let's so, say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, a kid like that could um, could put uh, David Copperfield to shame, you know, one of these um, stage magicians. But uh, but yeah, and, and another thing too is, uh, as we've said in the book, you know, even if a, a sceptical reader, a stubbornly sceptical reader, <clears throat> just cannot believe the Australian stuff, you know, we've recommended that they they look at. Um, uh, say, um, uh, Mandel Fedor's book, um, The Poltergeist Through the Ages, that he wrote in the 1950s, or compiled in the 1950s, where he and uh, Harold Carrington collected over 300 reports, uh, dating from as early as uh, 300 AD. <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, it, it's just all these hallmarks of poltergeist activity just occur and occur and occur in different cultures, in different centuries, um, and uh, yeah. well, in, in the case of Australia, you know, I, uh, over the course of 150 years, they've been occurring in different parts of the country to people who couldn't, you know, feasibly have known how to fake a poltergeist event. You know, they wouldn't know enough about the phenomenon to, to fake it. Yet um, their cases follow the same pattern mm. as age-old cases from overseas and elsewhere in Australia. It should be mentioned too. It's like these people—they don't have the time or the inclination to 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 hoax a poltergeist case in their home. It's like they're barely eking out a living or they're barely scraping by. These are like territorial type type situations, folks. You know, that's the crazy part. Yeah. Like, they're, 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 they're trying to survive. They don't have time to make up poltergeist stories. Like, they, they don't. So, you know what I mean? That's right, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Some of those colonial era people in the book, yeah, they, um, it must have been a great nuisance, and some of them actually uh, had to, well, they packed up and left the place, you know, they, they, they moved. Right. But, um, the, um, uh, certainly in uh, Humpty Doo, um, the, um, uh, People who were in the house, the, the occupants of the house that was being persecuted, uh, by the time we got there, uh, they were totally and utterly sick of the whole thing. Now, they were, as they say up there, they'd had a gutful of it. 
And I said, we just want to get rid of the effing thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Let's do Humpty Do, because that's a big, big, big part of the book. And as I said, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I've had a lot of people on talking about all kinds of stuff on this show, but you're definitely the first guy I've ever talked to who's been inside of a, of a poltergeist-infested house. Um, so just oh, the personal good. perspective uh, sounds absolutely amazing. So I guess first, and I know it's a huge story and it's a huge part of the book, so we, we just want to give a thumbnail for people on this story. Give them, give them you know, catch them up a little bit, you know, but they got to pick up the book because it's like 60 pages plus in the book. It's absolutely amazing, folks, and totally captivating, but we can't really talk about it unless we <laughs> tell you a little bit about it. So sure, sure. catch them up on that. Yeah, yeah. well, I'll try and keep it brief, but hmm. uh, as you may have noticed, the big problem with me is um, there's so much to tell, I get excited about it and tend to uh, ramble on, but um, the um Humpty Doo business started in January 1998. Uh, it's in the tropics up near Darwin, and um, uh, it's a very, very stormy, very stormy uh, season. They call it the wet up there in um, January, December, January, February, uh, lightning and um, so on. Now, many of our um, poltergeist cases are associated with stormy weather, right, very right. rainy periods. Uh, other people have uh, noted that overseas too. Electrical activity seems to be a part of it somehow. We don't know how. But um, these people were um, sitting outside on their veranda or outside uh, in the yard and watching the lightning. And um, stones started to um, flick out of the shadows or out of the sky or something. And they thought somehow some of their friends or whatever had... Um, Come onto the property, uh, which is um, reasonably remote, a uh, long way off the, of 70 metres off a um, remote road. They thought that's strange, and they they went searching around the um, five-acre property, looking, couldn't see anything. Went inside, and the stones followed them inside. Started raining inside, and they thought, well, <laughs> they didn't couldn't think what to do. So they opened the uh, manhole in the ceiling to see if there was something in the loft of the building. But as soon as they opened the manhole, um, a rain of stones came down on their faces. Uh, then there was scratchings and bangings and um, objects started flying around. Um, uh, it was quite violent in those days. It smashed um, CD players and uh, uh, windows, um, glass panels in, in, in uh, cases. Yeah, lots of glass. Really I noticed there. that lots of, lots of glass flying around. That was the troubling part. Yes, yes. Go ahead, I'm true. sorry. Yeah, it would, um, even when we were there, it was still, um, dropping shards of, um, uh, broken glass. Uh, well, I don't know where it got that from because, you know, the glass had all been cleaned up, all the broken windows were fixed by the time we got there, but it was still raining, <laughs> raining broken glass. Jeez, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, to cut a long story short, they, they thought, what do we do? What do we do? You know, when you've got a, well, they realised it was a poltergeist, you know, they, they knew that yeah. they'd seen the movies, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they thought, well, who do you call? And so they, they weren't religious at all, so they, but they called the local Catholic priest. And uh, in the end, the um, three priests uh, attended uh, over different periods of time, and the local priest was there several times. Um, but that just seemed to aggravate things. And uh, the... Um, a uh, priest from Darwin was an Indian fellow who was there on exchange, and uh, he said he'd seen several infestations in India, and uh, 
he said, look, I'll bless the place, but um, uh, it probably won't work. It doesn't seem to work, uh, but I'll try it. And um, uh, as he entered the kitchen, a knife uh, lifted up off the microwave and flew across the room straight for his chest. <laughs> but he, uh, he he just stood there, yeah. He, he said, well, I didn't have time to move anyway, but I knew it wouldn't hurt me. And uh, it stopped in midair just in front of his chest and dropped on the floor. Hmm. Uh, so he, he said to them, well, look, you've just got to wait for these things to finish. And uh, probably will, unless it's focused on one of you who may be a natural medium. Uh, well, it did finish when they all finally left the house. It, it didn't follow them. So I think it might have been something to do with the site, well, amongst other things, hmm. which I could mention in a, later. But um, anyway, the, the phenomena uh, was pretty intense. It was many, many lanes of stones indoors and out um, Lots of knives flying around, banging and crashing. Uh, the crucifix that uh, one of the priests left became uh, a frequent flyer, as they called it. <laughs> Several objects that they, uh, the the uh, uh, people in the house referred to as um, frequent flyers. Uh, and um, the crucifix flew around. The Bible was uh, thrown around and smashed against the wall so much that it just about fell apart. Um, one of the priests, a Greek uh, Orthodox guy, um, when he was trying to do his thing, um, something grabbed his right arm and twisted it up behind his back. Oh, my God. And um, he just about had a heart attack. He said, oh, this is the worst one I've ever struck. <laughs> so um, it uh, went on and on and on, and um, uh, there were there were a, a local um, newspaper uh, heard about it after about a month, and um, all the um, journalists, or well, two or three young journalists from there, plus the editor, all saw they got hit by stone falls and everything. They wrote it up, and then of course the World Press um, got um, uh, going on it, and um, a, um, uh, a television station, um, television program in in Australia here. Uh, tabloid television show, really, uh, called Today Tonight, uh, offered them, uh, what was it, $2,000, something, I think that was the figure, it wasn't much between the five of them anyway, for um, exclusive rights to the, exclusive access to the house for a week, and they said, yeah, um, mainly to get the, the other media off their backs, because they were being fielding phone calls from all over the world at one stage. Anyway, um, the, the television people set up many, many cameras inside and out, and um, they found, as we did with our cameras later, that um, uh, nothing happened in front of the cameras, but nothing happened just just out of range of the cameras and just behind the cameras. Uh, so um, they went away, and uh, we um, arrived uh, shortly after that, and... Um, as I said, we were there for five days, and um, uh, the people were um, were you know, pretty hospitable, although they were very tired and uh, jumpy by then. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we we saw plenty of objects um, flying. Um, I saw an object uh, just materialise out of thin air right in front of me. So um, it didn't take much to convince us that it was real. Right, right. It's amazing stuff. Like what. We, 
I guess give me a little bit on the personal perspective of like being there. I think you mentioned in the book you, you, you I think you said like it was cool when you were visiting, but then you spent the night, and that's when you were the first time you were kind of like, uh oh, <laughs> I don't know if I like this uh, older guy's research anymore. But like, what was it like yeah. being there? Did, did the hair on your neck stand up when this stuff happened? Like, were you like, what? Just how did it feel? Uh, well, it was some. Um, it was really um, exciting more than scary. Mm. Uh, we were we were laughing, you know. We were, because the the, uh, the the days up there are pretty long, you know, in in the um, summer, and mm-hmm. uh, it was plenty of light. And we were there um, until you know late in the evening. But but by that time, the um, most of the people were home from their various jobs, so it wasn't like we were alone in the haunted house, you know, scenario. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, it was definitely creepy. If I, I found that if I left the group and went down to the far end of the house into what the, everyone agreed seemed to be the creepiest feeling room, I was I was a bit, a bit jumpy there. And um, uh, yes, when uh, one what, there was only one night that Paul and I uh, slept there. We um, put out our sleeping bags on the uh, on the floor in the um, lounge room and. Um, uh, yeah, that was kind of creepy. Um, that was actually the what the first night we were there, oh, so we didn't know what to expect. And, yeah, uh, yeah. There's a lot of um, a lot of being the tropics. There's a lot of funny noises, you know, things whooping and creaking and mm. gibbering, you know, um, geckos and things. And uh, of course, I'm, I'm I think I'm a bit jumpier than Paul. I, I just about jumped up and clung to the ceiling <laughs> like <laughs> a couple of times, but. Uh, so that was a little unnerving, but but generally, no, it wasn't scary uh, yeah. to us. Um, and the householders uh, had actually got sort of so used to it, although they were tired of it, that it didn't scare them anymore. Um, the, they said the first night that it happened, well, the the, the, the ladies particularly were um, they were crying. They were really scared because um, it sounded like. Something big and menacing with 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 claws was like inside yeah. the internal walls, right next to their beds, clawing and uh, scurrying and so on, as well as um, objects flying all around the place. And um, I should mention, perhaps for the benefit of the listeners, that um, just two weeks before this business began, uh, a good friend of all of the people in the house, a guy called um, <coughs> Troy Redatz. Uh, was incinerated in a terrible road accident just a kilometre away. Uh, he and a friend had been driving along in a, a car and they had, um, it was the back of the, um, truck was full of, um, paint thinner and they were incinerated. Uh, so when it first began, they, they thought, could it have been him trying, you know, trying somehow trying to communicate with them or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and this got, um, this theory grew uh, when uh, his name was spelled out. Uh, this weird graffiti started appearing in the house, sometimes scrawled on the walls and doors with um, what you call the magic markers, um, and um, sometimes spelled out bizarrely in in pebbles, um, uh, hundreds of pebbles arranged incredibly neatly into the form of, um, of letters like a Troy, uh, a car, 
burn, well, and help, I think, was another one. Uh, I mean, pretty clearly, either it was Troy, their friend, sort of saying what was me, or uh, as they, the uh, people there came to suspect, the poltergeist had been eavesdropping on their conversations and was trying to mess with their minds mm. maliciously sort of playing on their grief about right, their right. friend. And uh, they challenged it after a while. They, they said, um, they walked through the house loudly uh, swearing <laughs> and saying, you're not um, Troy, you, um, you know, blankety blank. Yeah, such and such. Swear words. You're not <laughs> yeah. Troy, you, um, uh, you know, why don't you just piss off, you know, get lost, go away. And uh, the the graffiti continued, but, but the references to Troy ceased. Hmm. Um, nevertheless, uh, I think that it's possible that Troy's death, that somehow or other his spirit was, was part of this thing. Hmm. But, um, there were so many other, there are four or five other ingredients, uh, to this, uh, haunting. Uh, uh, so I think Troy's death was just one of them. Um, it was like a, sort of, it had the makings of a psychic stew when you broke it down, um, this, uh, this haunting. Uh, should I go into that thing? Yeah, um, yeah, well, yeah, I think you're thinking about, I think you're, you're alluding to the Aboriginal, uh, strangeness that happened there. So tell me about that, because, in reading that, it, it really struck me as like bizarre. It's a, like you said, it's, this, it's really this like psychic stew, and and this was like a really strange potato that kind of floated up in, in in this story. And I was like, what is what is going on with these with this Aboriginal element to this whole thing? So talk about that because it was really bizarre. For sure, for sure, yeah, yeah. Well, um, four, four days before um, Paul and I arrived at the house. Uh, the, um, poltergeist stuff had been going full strength, all the stonefalls, etc. And then, um, one day, uh, Kirsty, um, Argius, the, um, the lady who was, um, the only person who stayed at home there during the day, she was the only one who didn't work because she had a, um, 11 month old, uh, daughter. So she was there by herself and, um, she said she uh, just looked out the kitchen window and there were two um, very dark uh, Aboriginal guys, like uh, full-on, you know, tribal Aboriginal fellows, um, uh, right outside the kitchen, um, kneeling down, digging a hole underneath a mango tree. And um, she she said, um, she went out and said, what, what are you doing here? And they stood up. They didn't even look at her. They walked around the house and then up this 70 metre driveway to the road and there was a little orange car up there. <laughs> they got in and drove away. Well, um, she, the, the, they'd cleared a um, patch of leaves about grave sized, about six feet by two feet. Uh, and, um, in the top centre of it, there was this, this, hole that they were digging. It was still there when we got there. Well, um, after that, as soon as they, they left, the, all the phenomena stopped for um, four days. And, and we got there, and, uh, and they said, well, you're welcome to the house, but um, 
nothing's happened for four days. And we thought, oh, my God, no. The cosmic prankster is playing a trick on us here. We've come all the way, flown, um, uh, well, nearly uh, 2,500 kilometres from the south of Australia up to Darwin. And um, uh, the poltergeist has decided to um, waltz off into the ether and uh, cease activity. So we... Uh, hang around, um, we, we went and investigated another mystery, which was up the road <laughs> yeah. for a couple of days. And, uh, we'll tell more about that later, perhaps. And, um, anyway, um, uh, then, uh, no, sorry, that's right, there was four days, uh, before we got there, there was nothing. Then for the first day we were there, there was nothing. And then it started again, too much to our relief. Um, so, um, <laughs> so that was the Aboriginal thing. Um, the what? What? There's a bit of a mystery because the. the um, I, I don't think it's uh, unfair to say that the um, those five people in the house um, they were working class people. Um, they worked hard and so on, um, but they were um, racist, really, predominantly, a bit racist. Uh, yeah, somewhat racist, you might say. Um, culturally uh, racist might a, be a good way to put it. They were culturally racist. Uh, yeah, kind of their, this, yeah, uh, they, of that they, of that um, socioeconomic class where racism is prevalent. Uh, yeah, there's a bit of that's right. There's a class thing. Uh, well, see, the Northern Territory um, was one of the more recent frontiers of Australia. There, there were still um, massacres happening up there in the late 1920s and um, uh, people being speared and shot and uh, so on. Mm. The Aboriginal people up there, uh, some of them very, very tribal. They've still got all their culture and, um, uh, you know, they get their own way and um, and working nine to five is, <laughs> in many cases, not part of the scenario. So some white working class guys, although they, you know, they're getting paid well and everything, they have this kind of... Um, Attitude, well, uh, you know, the Aborigines won't do any work. We got to do it all. But of course, they should be grateful to have a job. Anyway, whatever. Um, I mean, they, 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 the the husband of this woman who saw the Aborigines, he said, "Look, I think this somehow might be connected with something that happened a couple of years ago uh, at a previous house that he and his wife had been in. There had been." stones that flew in through the front door in the most mysterious manner, uh, never made a mark on the walls, which is very strange. That's another poltergeist hallmark. Right. Uh, and at that time, he thought it must have been Aboriginal kids with slingshots, because he said, oh, they probably heard me saying something down at the pub about how I don't like Aborigines or something. Hmm. Anyway, um, whatever it was, it was dead strange. I mean, either those two Aborigines were trying to lift the curse. Uh, well, he thought he thought maybe see maybe some Aboriginal uh, um, medicine man, a wizard or shaman, had somehow put a bit of a curse on him and his wife. Um, hmm. But um, whether these Aborigines were trying to lift the, that curse or uh, re-energize it somehow is is a, is one of the mysteries of the thing. Yeah. Um, I tend to think they were they were that, that they had heard about the whole thing from all the media attention and maybe went to try and help out. That was my first. That, that's kind of my inclination. Yeah, they may have. Yeah. But they didn't since they didn't yeah, say anything. I mean, it's even all, makes it weirder. 
Yeah, because after all, it did uh, the stuff did stop for four days. Perhaps if you hadn't in- interrupted them, it would have stopped altogether. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. And um, yeah, in in one of our other cases, the uh, that Mayanup case from Western Australia, there's um, a lot of Aboriginal um, uh, input into that. Uh, there were two, well, three Aboriginal shamans who were um, asked to try and um, exorcise the. Um, uh, the poltergeist again, mm. uh, with mixed success. Um, one guy seems to have had some success, and the other two just aggravated it, as the as the Catholic priest did. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, in, in the Northern Territory, uh, at Humpty Doo, there were there were many other things. There was um, uh, Troy Radatz's terrible death. There was the Aboriginal thing. There was the. Um, uh, Factor in that the a Greek man who had built the house and established the property had had it uh, wrenched away from him by a bank. Um, ah. His business had failed, and um, he'd lost the house. And um, his wife and he he said um, he said we dream about it every night in our dreams. We must get back there. We will get back there. And he thought. The poltergeist was a result of what had happened to him and his wife. He, his, um, his language was just highly charged. He, he said, um, uh, the bank took 30 years of my blood, he said. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you're right. This is like a, this wife. is like a psychic stew here. There's all kinds of, there's all kinds well, of energy yeah, here. Yeah. And you should mention yeah, too, yeah. how ang, that the, the, I think it was the guy you said who who uh, who made the comments in the bar, but there was one dude in the story. I forget his name. I want to say Bruce or something like that, but he was like oh, just this uh, Murph. Murph, yeah, yeah. It was, just, it was like angry, like yeah. frightening guy. Just reading the story alone, I'm just like, I would not want to run across this guy because he 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 yeah. seems like a real uh, menace to society. So so he <laughs> seemed like trouble. He was, uh, yeah. He he was the only single guy in the house. There were two young couples and. Uh, and then Murph, and Murph had been um, a very good, a close friend of Troy, who died. He was probably the closest friend, and he seemed to be, he he, he was a man of very few words, and he seemed to be grieving, I, I would say. Uh, he was, uh, yeah, he was very angry. He was um, he was very sensitive to any suggestion that um, they'd been hoaxing it. He, he would get really angry, and... Um, Appropriately enough, uh, his friend was incinerated, um, as I said, while Murph had um, tattoos of flames all over his arms. And I thought, well, that's a pretty weird coincidence. Anyway, um, Murph, um, yeah, when we first arrived, I thought um, Murph um, might have um, uh, attacked us. You know, he was swearing at us, you know, saying, oh, you, uh, you know, the bloody... um, Journalists, uh, uh, media people, and we kept saying, "Oh, we're not media people. <laughs> we're, not, we're just interested." And fortunately, we we had our um, poltergeist file containing all kinds of similar cases from the colonial era, and uh, we showed it to the um, the guys, and uh, and they they could see then we were in, you know we were interested, and they said, "Yeah, yeah, this is this is exactly what's happening here." It's just what they've been trying to tell these idiots. Yeah, exactly. You so, guys kind uh, of uh, yeah, Murph, um, got some street cred yeah, there with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Murph. He seemed like a really uh, like a like a like a frightening dude. Now the other part uh, 
to compound his anger and everything, it should, it bears mentioning the, uh, just the complete, just, uh, the, the hit on the habit of these guys from the media, from that Today Tonight show. That was like a whole interior saga to this story where it's like, oh man, they really, they kind of got, they kind of got raked over the coals. They got made to look like jerks, uh, by the national, by the national TV. It's awful. Yes, yes um, yeah. Well, the, the entire team of cameramen and, uh, the director, uh, who had been at the house for a week, they were all totally convinced the phenomenon was real. They'd all seen um, rains of stones, knives, bullets, um, the works, as we did. Uh, they were totally convinced that they were, uh, but they couldn't get anything pr- properly on camera. They they just got one little bit of footage of a bullet um, in its the last stages of its fall to the floor, uh, plus a, a plastic pot that. Um, just fell off the microwave. Um, uh, nothing, uh, nothing dramatic at all. Oh, except uh, for they, they did have the, the sense to bring with them a, a fellow uh, from Queensland who had um, uh, infrared cameras. Um, yeah, this and, is. Uh, let me just jump in here because this is absolutely. Yeah. I thought one of the most amazing parts of the whole book because I had never thought of this yeah. and it reveals so much about what's going on I think it really is I feel like it's something that that it could be a doorway to much more uh realization of what's going on here what this guy was doing with the uh with the photographs I'm surprised more more uh you know, they were not seeing more in this realm. But talk about this 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 thermal imaging, this infrared imaging that was being done on the objects being thrown around. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the fellow's name was uh, Brendan Gowdy, and he had very sophisticated thermal imaging uh, cameras. Um, the, you see, one thing about poltergeist events is the, the stones and other objects that are, that are thrown are often said to be very warm, even hot, even very hot to the touch. Uh, and uh, in the Northern Territory, the, um, the stones and other objects were, were distinctly warm, uh, and um, so um, the uh, director of this group uh, brought along Brendan Gowdy, and uh, they, they first off they they picked up some of these objects uh, themselves, handled them, threw them, and then photographed the objects. And um, the uh, thermal imaging camera showed uh, fingerprints and smudges corresponding with fingers on these objects, uh, but. Whenever he photographed uh, an object that had been apparently thrown by the poltergeist, uh, the entire object was uniformly warm. So they were, they were quite different. Mm. And um, so we have um, photographs uh, in our book of, um, of a bullet cartridge and um, a shard of glass. Uh, so um, the, yeah, it's the, amazing. You know, glowing there. But so that that was that's um, a good empirical empirical evidence, I think, really. Absolutely, uh, I mean, yeah. That's what excited me so much about it. It's like with, with today's modern technology, if we had a a Humpty Do situation in in 2015, maybe we could get more information by following that route um, of of analyzing yeah. this stuff as soon as it's been thrown around. So maybe get more information. Yeah. But uh yeah, so that, that that excited me. If anyone in the audience or if you know anything more about people who are doing this kind of stuff, that would be great. We need more of that. But I realize I interrupted you about how how the media completely screwed these guys. So so um let's get back to that. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. It was um, uh, for um, uh, the better part of a week. Um, this this show is um, a nightly. It's it's shown nightly in Australia. So um, initially, um, the program was sympathetic to the you know uh, to the people in the house, and um, it was pitched. Uh, they were they were saying, well, there seems to be a genuine event. They played. Um, uh, footage of interviews with the priests and with the local um, newspaper people and every, uh, lots of other people, 18 people who had um, witnessed the uh, the events. Nobody who went to the house, by the way, ever left uh, unconvinced. So um, they, they had these 18 people and they, they had the cameras in the house, they interviewed the people. They had the cameras set up so that they covered the entire house apart from the bathroom and the, the bedrooms. Uh, they covered the, um, the, um, outside of the house and everything. So they said that they were, um, attempting to keep an eye on the, on the people just to make sure there was no hoaxing and as well as to try and capture the, um, the objects that were flying. And, uh, as I said, most, most of the time during the day it was only the uh, one lady and the toddler there anyway from the group. But, um, the, um, uh, at the end of the uh, the week, they they went back to Sydney, and um, the director um, said uh, to the uh, producer uh, down there, "Well, well, you know, we've we've got it, we've got it, we've we've got some some things on uh, on camera, and uh, we're all convinced, we've all seen these things, and uh, it's genuine." And the producer um, uh, went through a hundred hours of. Um, film and uh, he said uh, well you haven't proved anything mate um, you know there's nothing here that a sceptical viewer that would convince a sceptical viewer I mean apart from the testimony of the eyewitnesses there was nothing um, you know in the um, footage of the pistol he said someone could have thrown that pistol cartridge and uh, so on now why the um, thermal imaging photos didn't cut any ice with the producer, I just don't know. Uh, perhaps that would have been too difficult to explain yeah, yeah. on television, that kind of program. But in any case, the, the um, higher-ups um, above this producer said, um, no, um, you know, this is a turkey, this, this show's a turkey. Yeah. Also, um, yeah, that's right, uh, there was a um, one bit of uh, footage taken uh, after the main party left. They they had a, a local camera team from Darwin also assisting them, and they caught a um, an object, a pot lid, in flight. And both of those uh, cameramen uh, were convinced uh, that nobody could have thrown it. But <clears throat> down in Sydney, an editor saw an image, a reflection of Kirsty, the the woman with the toddler, in a in a the front of a glass cabinet, so that it appeared she was, that she was behind the cameraman, and uh, it, it, she either looked up or bobbed up just as the object flew. Well, the cameraman said no, she was she was in a position where she couldn't have thrown it, and uh, the trajectory of the thing was wrong. It, it must have flown, must have been poltergeist. But the um, down in Sydney, the uh, the uh, bosses of the show said, ha-ha, we've caught the hoaxer. End of story. And um, the woman, um, they, they insisted that the 
poor young director who had uh, who was a total believer who'd seen all this. They insisted that he he become a hoaxbuster now and phone the woman from Sydney and demand that she confess. And uh, he uh, phoned her several times up until midnight one night, and he he claimed later that she did confess. Well, uh, when we got there, she said she did no such thing. Um, she said the nearest thing to a confession she might have said was, say what you like, I don't care, I'm sick of the whole thing. Uh, in any case, uh, the final program of that Today Tonight television show um, concluded with, well, it was a hoax, these people are, um, you know, just a bunch of um, beer-drinking Territorians and uh, joke over, you know, yeah. they're not fooled sort of thing. But uh, it was infuriating to the people in the house because, <laughs> after all, it, uh, the phenomenon continued for a month apart from that uh, four-day hiatus uh, right, right. after the Aboriginal visit. So it was, was, was still going on and they were sick to death of it. It continued until they, they left the house about a month after we, um, we were there. And we've checked with them since. Um, it didn't follow any of them uh, away, so that was a relief. But there, there could have been something about the site itself as I mean, well, there was the, the Greek, the Greek curse. Oh, by the way, that, that, um, Greek man said that, uh, he said, I don't know whether there's a curse on the house, but he said, he said there's definitely a curse on the bank. Because <laughs> when his wife was, was dragged out of the house, she put a Greek curse, as he called it, on the bank. And, uh, as Paul and I say in the book, well, if, uh, Every time someone cursed a bank, uh, a poltergeist appeared, uh, they'd be everywhere. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, That's for sure. Anyway, there were there were other things. What else was there? Uh, there was some other aspect. Uh, well, I, yeah, someone people had suggested that, um, yeah, that, that a, a strange phenomenon, but um, much less marked, had occurred at that property before, uh, a year or two before. So might have been something. I think this was like 1998. Has, has anything, um, have you kind of followed up on the site since and seen if uh, whoever lives there now is experiencing uh, yeah, it? I, uh, yeah, I went back there, um, but uh, there wasn't anyone home. The house had been, um, had actually been added to. It was a single story when we were there that someone had put a, an added uh, couple of rooms up top. Um, but we were told that um, uh, by a, a person who lived nearby um, that, um, that they had, people had a lot of trouble renting the house afterwards Yeah. Uh, and eventually it was um, given to the uh, Defence Housing Association on a long lease so that there, were, there was an army officer and his wife there. Uh, our friend um, spoke to the, um, to the wife and uh, the wife said that um, yeah there'd been a couple of little strange little things happening but but nothing uh, world-shattering, so they yeah. were hopeful it wouldn't uh, occur. Yeah, interesting. So, Makes you wonder, like, if the military owns it now, they're just like, shut up and don't tell anybody if, <laughs> if anything happened, you know. We wouldn't know if they yeah, keep cycling people out of it and stuff. That's just an amazing, amazing story. There's so many elements to it that are just absolutely remarkable. Yeah. The fact that you were there is, like, tremendous stuff. Oh, yeah. You got a light, buddy? Yeah, sure, kid. There you go. And your wallet. Nick, give him your wallet. 
What for? He's got a knife. <laughs> a knife. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. That's a knife. This might be a good jumping off point, actually, because um, I don't want to have to have to have you go through the whole Mayan up episode. Because I want also I want people to get the book. I want them to read that. That's the five star case, folks. What you just heard was the four and a half star. The Mayan up is a five star case. The the cream of the crop. So I guess tell people a little bit, which I really loved, is because I'm like a, a fastidious about this kind of thing too. I really like how of the of the dozens and dozens of cases in the book. They're each uh, ranked. They're classified. They're graded. That's the word I was looking for. They're graded in the star system. So talk a little bit about, you know, what goes into the star system and and, and sort of what you guys look at as far as criteria for what what you know what elements add to the strength of a case. Yeah. Well, the um, the uh, star system. Yeah, that originated just amongst Paul and myself, just to sort of um, try and figure out which cases we. We thought were the strongest. Um, the Mayan Up one was clearly the strongest of all. So we decided on to rank them from uh, zero stars to um, five stars. Uh, zero stars were for um, either proven hoaxes or mistakes or cases where there was just a possibility of a hoax. Um, and you have a half star for very poorly documented cases. Yeah, like a letter uh, to the editor or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, the first, um, as you mentioned earlier, the the first eleven chapters of the book uh, concern our best eleven cases, and uh, uh, all of them are three. What we rated as three star cases or better, mm. uh, mainly uh, four star cases. Uh, and uh, then the um, the other forty odd um, cases uh, listed in the uh, catalogue of cases. Uh, some of them are three star cases, but mainly two or one. Or we, we've um, just put them all in there. Um, we didn't want to um, cravenly um, avoid putting in the weak cases. Uh, we thought, in fairness to skeptics, we put in cases that we. We, we know our hoaxes and we point that out. Right. Um, there's a couple of them. And, um, you know, we put in the, the weaker cases and said to the skeptics, okay, do your, do your worst or, um, and, um, also we've said that say, um, you know, we have a one star case from Goulburn, New South Wales. We've, <clears throat> well, we said if any local people, uh, local historians want to have a go at, um, at digging up more information about some of these cases. They might well find that they're quite strong cases. Right. And, that's um, a that's a great part of the book too. You never know, given how people are into this genealogy and stuff nowadays. You just don't know. You know, like I said, some of this yeah. stuff is like letters to the editor that are in the paper and stuff. You guys found. You never know. Someone. This might be someone's grandma or something. And next thing you know, you might get more information, and it might go from a one star to a to a four star just based on what yeah. what you find out later or yeah. something. Who knows? That's the that's, that's why you got to have it all in there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, of course, we're continuing to um, to hear about Australian cases. I was um I was down at a house um. In the on the western side of the Blue Mountains uh, near Sydney uh, a couple of months ago, and there seems to be a poltergeist occurring there. So, and Paul, of course, continues to um, uh, find cases, um, foreign cases, uh, many of them. Hmm. Uh, oh, I could mention that um, 
just by way of comparison, um, we include um, three Asian cases um, in our book in, a, in an appendix. Uh, yeah. Because Paul has been to Turkey and um, Vietnam and uh, Malaysia in uh, 2013, I think he went visited all of those places. There were uh, poltergeist episodes going there. Uh, so um, we thought, well, just by way of um, comparison, we'd, uh, we'd include them. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, Paul. Uh, Paul's pretty mobile. Uh, no doubt he'll he'll visit many more sites. And uh, since then, I've been to the UK myself and uh, uh, visited two places there that uh, uh, were um, poltergeist interested, including one uh, cottage uh, right next to Loch Ness. Uh, oh wow! Weird. enough. Yikes. Perhaps uh, some kind of connection, maybe. Yeah. Who knows? As I said, I, I, I want to table the uh, the Mayan up episode for folks to check out in the book because that's the five star case. That's the amazing. Uh, it goes beyond beyond Humpty Doo, folks. It's absolutely riveting. It, it spans all kinds of areas, spans all kinds of crazy twists and turns. It's absolutely amazing. I want to just ask you all one element to the story uh, that you say is sort of a, a cultural thing in Australia, and that's the Min Min lights, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. That might be something. Uh, that you can talk to us a little bit about without uh, giving away the Mayan up episode. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, there were many strange ingredients in the Mayan up uh, poltergeist episode, but uh, one of them was that uh, uh, these floating lights would be seen um, during the stone falls. Um, uh, you had the uh, in America, various places in America, the spook lights, uh, don't you? You know, the jack o' lantern type spook lights. Well, in Australia. Um, that they're referred to as Min Min lights and uh, they're associated um, well in the popular imagination with a, a little tiny place called Min Min in Queensland uh, and they're, um, they're very, very strange. They, uh, uh, they follow people. Sometimes they seem to play games with people. They'll come up to a, a horseman or someone or other and uh, circle them and kind of come in to have a bit of a look and then uh, <clears throat> when you approach them, they uh, they zoom off. Sometimes they follow cars, and uh, um, weird. Of course, there might be mistakes. You know, people sometimes see uh, the planet Venus or whatever. There's many, many. The skeptics have a field day with these things, but oh, I'm sure, they, it's so uh, weird. And, yeah. them them closed up. Uh, but um, yeah, they in at Mayan up, uh, they were. Um, they became a feature of the um, the stone falls would occur, and then people would see these. Um, these lights um, cruising down just above a creek or above a fence line. Uh, in one case, a young Aboriginal guy was chased by one back to the, the property. He was coming from one poltergeist haunted place to the other because, uh, as I said, <laughs> uh, two two properties initially were, um, uh, were became haunted. Mm. Um, then, as uh, after the poltergeist. Um, stuff, the stone falls and all that um, ceased um, on the property. The lights continued and became, some of them became bigger and bigger and started to behave like, well, they could be classified as UFOs, I suppose. Into the 1990s even, they were occasionally chasing um, cars up and down the the road that ran between the two initial properties. Pretty strange. So yeah. um, 
uh, one fellow claimed that uh, his car was dragged to a halt by one of these lights, which is very reminiscent of some of the UFO activity, of course. Um, on the original property, um, at Maynup, after the, a couple of the big lights were seen going across the corner of the property, the people went up there and found that great clods of earth, a turf, had been ripped out of the ground and turned upside down. Uh, so that was a, a strange aspect to it. Um, we, we made the connection to um, uh, the um, famous um, Bell Witch case in um, in America, Tennessee, mm. uh, at in 2930, I think uh, it was. They, um, they spoke of um, uh, strange lights uh, being seen on the property as well. Uh, so... Um, it's it, you know they're all throughout the book. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we make connections between comparisons between some of the Australian phenomena and obscure uh, aspects of uh, foreign cases. So yeah, there's a, a million lights. Um, Interesting there, stuff. Yeah. One other Australian case um, with lights. Yeah. I'm kind of going to go through sort of chronologically here, because like I said, uh, I feel like we could do a whole show on the Mayan Up, and we, we've done like almost half the show here on Humpty Doo, so I want to make sure I sort of hit some of the some of the stuff that really raised my hackles as I went through the cases here over the course of the book, instead of uh, just giving people two, two big cases. So in the Ghost in the Machine story, I found this really interesting that... Uh, and I'll give sort of a thumbnail for this, folks. So this, this farmer has a milking machine, and essentially, like, pieces of the milking machine are just flying off in 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 ways that defy accidentally. Um, they sort of fly in sort of ways, arches, and disappear in different ways and stuff like that. It's sort of a very odd uh, element tied to this milking machine. And what I really found fascinating about the story and the case was that um, – and and maybe maybe it sort of came along at the end, but for the most part, the farmer and uh, the it seemed like it was more of a scientific mystery. The farmer looked at this more as a sort of a scientific mystery, and it seemed like the witnesses all kind of looked at it as sort of a scientific engineering mystery, um, some kind of mechanical mystery. It's like they didn't really even seem to delve into the paranormal possibilities, as far as I could tell. It seemed like everyone was just trying to figure out why this was happening. It's a very strange case in that regard, but also kind of cool because it, it, by taking it out of the paranormal bubble and them looking at it from an engineering perspective, they still couldn't figure it out, which makes it even more bizarre. Yes, that's right. Uh, they were tying themselves in knots trying to explain it. They'd be, um, they'd actually stand there and, and stare. They'd just look at these, um, uh, these bits of the machine that were constantly disappearing. They'd, they'd be looking straight at the thing, and then all of a sudden it wouldn't be there, just gone. And they'd find it 150 metres away out in the paddock. Um, of course, there were um, tins and um, and uh, tools also that, that lifted and uh, levitated in the, in the shed, but the main phenomenon by far was just this poor, unfortunate milking machine, mm. the pulsator plates that were... Just disappearing. Uh, and as you say, they were, it was 1949, 1949 to 50, and they were desperately trying to explain it. They said, oh, if only Australia or, you know, the Western world could, could harness this power, whatever it is that's doing this, um, you know, it could be very important. 
and scientists went there, and of course, um, you know, nothing happened when the scientists were there. But, but then dozens of other other people were there. Um, and, well, well, um, engineers engineers saw it. Um, several engineers. But um, uh, yes, it was it was dead strange. And even the um, the prime minister of Australia at the time had a well a peripheral. Um, uh, he had an interest in it, and uh, he encouraged the um, scientific uh, scientists to go and. Uh, Figure it out, but uh, yeah, it was it was very strange. Um, Paul visited the property in in recent years, and uh, the shed is still there, mm. but uh, but nothing much has uh, has happened since. Um, you should dig up like an old milking machine and bring it up to the thing and see if you can get it. Get, <laughs> see if anything would happen. See what happens. Yeah, just to see. <laughs> yeah, That'd be kind of yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah that was a good one. And uh, oh, what about the uh, the poltergeist haunted? Uh, prostitute here in uh, Canberra. Oh yeah. What you think of that one? Um, well, once I found out that there was legal brothels, I th- tried to figure out how how soon I could get down there. That's my that was what I first thought. <laughs> hey, hey, <laughs> <laughs> that was just sweet. Uh, yeah, that was um, that was yeah. That was just uh, I didn't know what to make. I felt like I I I uh, I felt like she had some kind of psychic. I felt like that was one of those cases where the meat where there's definitely like a sort of uh, personal psychic element to the whole thing. You know, I honestly think that yeah. she. I honestly feel like she, if anything, she, and I hate to get uh, lascivious here, but, you know, given her trade, I tend to feel like that maybe she just had a lot of uh, otherworldly admirers. And, uh, you know, and that kind of, uh, yeah. that, that kind of what is what, <laughs> is what was going on there. But that, yeah, there's a, there's a story of a poltergeist afflicted uh, prostitute in the book, folks. So you yeah, definitely want to check that out. Caressa, the prostitute. Yeah, the um, the fellow who, um, uh, who who embedded himself in that case. No pun uh, intended. Uh, Wing Commander um, Ken Llewellyn, who was around here just a few days ago. Um, uh, he still um, works for the Air Force, although he's semi-retired. Uh, he was the head of public relations for the Royal Australian Air Force uh, back then, and uh, he'd had ghostly experiences himself. And even written a book about um, experiences of um, his fellow airmen mm. with ghosts. Heard about the um, the poltergeist haunted prostitute, uh, and uh, contacted her. And uh, and yeah, he uh, he went around and um, sat there um, in the front office with uh, her um, friend, the receptionist, and uh, all kinds of weird stuff happened, uh, including a. Um, Cigarette lighter that um, floated um, past him and uh, and lit itself as it as it went past. He just asked the uh, receptionist if she had a, a light. By the way, if she had a match, and she said no. And this some um, cigarette lighter floated <clears throat> through the door from the other room and uh, lit itself and then settled down on the floor. He picked it up and uh, lit it and attempted to move it through the same trajectory. And the flame, of course, um, wavered quite a lot as he moved it. He said he noticed when it was, um, when the poltergeist was doing it, the flame was dead steady, mm. as though it was in some sort of a bubble of its own. That was interesting. And, uh, Very course, strange. Well, as you will have read, there are lots, lots and lots of other things. He saw many, many objects falling and so on. So, I got a good segue, actually, from his story about the flame, because... That leads me into this Cannibal Creek story, which sort of uh, is a jumping-off point, uh, not only in the book, but hopefully here in this conversation, to 
to the fire element of these poltergeist cases. I think that's like the first time really the, the, the dangerous fire element comes up. And then you point out that it, that it comes up in a lot of other stories, too, uh, with poltergeist. It seems like, I don't know why in some cases that seems to happen, but apparently in some instances, some infestations, it eventually leads to this dangerous aspect where, where fires are being started and sometimes homes are, homes are being lost and all kinds of bad things are happening. But it's... Uh, you know, if you weren't troubled by poltergeist before, this will add another element to make you concerned. But talk about talk about yeah. the fire, the fire aspect of poltergeist. Yeah, for sure, mate. For sure. Um, yeah, that's right. If you're going to have a poltergeist, uh, just hope you have a, a normal one, just with the stones. And because just every now and then, I'm not sure in what percentage of cases, but probably one case in every twenty or thirty, they uh, have a habit of starting small fires around uh, people's houses and um, usually uh, these fires uh, appear in areas where they're, they're readily found and easily put out. Uh, if they're not found, they, they usually just extinguish themselves and then people find a charred area. Um, but in some cases, yeah, they have consumed uh, houses and um, that happened at Cannibal Creek to a, a shack, actually, um, and uh, in um, in Canada, the famous Dag case um, that Paul has um, has been researching, he's written a, an article uh, for Forty and Times about that. I think two houses of an extended family were were burnt to the ground there. They they just couldn't; they had to stay up all night running around putting the fires out. Oh my God! Um, yeah, um, but. Um, in at Cannibal Creek, yeah, there were um, that was uh, at a um, uh, an area that I find interesting um, on the Australian frontier. It wasn't quite like in America, but there were areas where there were uh, sizable battles with um, Aboriginal warriors, and um, sadly, the um, uh, the area around Cannibal Creek uh, was the uh, was the worst of those cases, or one of the worst. That was. Um, the um, Palmer River Gold Rush that was in the um, uh, late 1860s um, and a very tropical area, inhospitable, uh, big gold strike and uh, 20,000 miners went there eventually and rampaged all over the poor old Aborigines hunting grounds and the Aborigines... uh, uh, tried to drive them away and were just shot down because in those days that was the year of um you know uh, uh when the the rifles were uh, repeaters and um and that men had revolvers so the poor old Aborigines had no chance. Although yeah. there were, they say there were um there were dozens and dozens of um of Europeans speared to death and maybe maybe a few eaten. Mm. There was um <clears throat> indications of cannibalism uh, hence the name Cannibal Creek. Right. Because the Aborigines, the, the, all their, their game was driven away. Anyway, um, in, in the, um, in 1935, well after the, um, the gold rush, there were, there were men still on the, uh, Palmer River area, uh, mining for tin, just, um, small concerns up and down the creeks, a few people here and there. And, um, yeah, the, um, Poltergeist uh, started to affect an old Chinese man who was actually a veteran of the earlier gold rush. Uh, a friend of his 
another Chinese man had uh, just died of um, some loathsome disease, as they put it, probably leprosy. And um, this Chinese man had um, had uh, cooked for the man and looked after him as best he could. Eventually he died, and so um, he burnt the, the old man's uh, heart and all his possessions because, you know, there was a fear of leprosy. Anyway, uh, shortly after that, um, uh, objects started flying around and hitting him and smashing everything in his shack. that's just down the creek. Um, so he sought some assistance from two um, uh, Anglo guys, uh, Anglo-Australians, um, uh, at Cannibal Creek. And um, they went over. They said, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's your young um, teenage assistant who's just hoaxing you um, and they said we'll fix this and uh, <laughs> yeah. they got there but immediately they, t- they started to get objects raining on them and uh, objects flying around terrible racket because it was a tin shack and uh, iron objects uh, were smashing into everything uh, their horses stampeded away um, then fires started breaking out on the floor, like with the earth floor, where there was nothing to burn. Right. And um, almost before they could get all the old man's uh, stuff out of the shack, um, the um, uh, the house burnt down. Um, then <clears throat> they went back to um, their camp, and um, the uh, poltergeist followed them and um, kept them up all night there with um, smashing and crashing and... Uh, it, uh, it tried to suffocate the young Chinese boy, who it seems clear the boy had nothing to do, nothing consciously to do with the phenomena. But uh, he had um, uh, cloths wrapped around his face tightly, and uh, the men had to tear these cloths off. And uh, then the boy um, fainted and um, stayed unconscious for some hours. So it was a, it was a pretty, pretty weird um, and intense situation mm. um, and um, the fires of course the way they broke out impossibly on, on the floor and on other objects um, that wouldn't normally burn <clears throat> that was very very similar to all three of those Asian cases that yeah. um, Paul investigated uh, last year yeah very strange it's very uh like I said uh, when we first started the conversation, things I didn't really even know about poltergeists. Uh, as I as I read the book, I was like, "This is this is bizarre stuff." I didn't even know. So, uh, kudos to you guys. Yeah. Oh well, you know there, there are many many people who know a lot more about poltergeists than we do. Um, you know, guy guy Playfair, for instance, in the the UK, and uh, many American uh, researchers. Uh, oh, I'm sure. But, yeah. Um, it, but yeah, we we um, we read all this stuff and sort of um, tried to tried to make comparisons. So um, yeah, it's um, it's certainly certainly uh, very very weird. Or to to say it's very very weird would be a, something of an understatement. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Now, based on your research on all this, I guess, and I'm sure it's really difficult to sort of put a number on it. But what would you say, basically? Uh, speculate or, uh, you know, based on what you think, 
what would you say the average length of time of an infestation generally is? Because in my mind, I imagine it's about maybe like a month or something, but I'm just kind of guessing based on based on my limited research. Uh, yeah, well, it seems, uh, I think, um, when we were putting together all our stuff here, um, I think we, we came up with, uh, you know, roughly two months. Okay. Uh, uh, sometimes the events last only um, two or three days. Right, exactly, and, and then and some last like six two. months to years. So that's why you, those are the extremes. Uh, yeah, right? well, the, the Mayanup one um, lasted for a good two years, um, and then and then was actually continuing into the 1960s, but the, um, the Aboriginal family that it was following at that stage um, just said, well, we stopped talking about it, and... Uh, they were itinerant uh, at that stage, so um, they, um, uh, when they finally eventually bought their own house, it, it continued, but, but less intensely, and uh, it's still going on, as I said, um, over there. I was talking to um, a lady at uh, Boyup Brook, that was the, the property that um, got infested um, last out of, chronologically, out of all um, uh, three properties, mm-hmm. and... Uh, it's it's changed in that um, it's quite mild uh, now. It's just objects that that go missing, you know, like um, well, you know, proverbially you put your car keys down and they're gone, and you think where are they? Mm. And then they turn up in some in in their case, you know, really bizarrely improbable locations. Uh, also, they have. Um, the sound of um, phantom cars driving down their um, long gravel driveway and uh, the sound of the car stopping and the doors opening and closing and they go out there and there's no car and no dust, nothing. And um, uh, footsteps footsteps coming down the stairs inside the house and uh, evidently just walking straight past them, you know, they, they say, well, it sounds like someone just walked right in front of me across the room. Jeez. They call that one Uncle Bobby. Uh, but it's evidently it's connected with the main up poltergeist because it's, uh, it's a kind of a, a continuation, but it, it's like some of these researchers have pointed out over the years, um, sometimes a poltergeist case can transmogify, if you like, into, alter into um, just an ordinary ghostly event. Right, right. So that appears to be what's happened there. It's the, this, you mentioned the car keys. That reminds me of the, uh, of the prostitute story where she, I think a client came to see her and he left, he locked his keys in the car and then she said, don't worry and said, uh, you know, Jack or whatever she called the ghost will get it. And then next thing you know, the the keys materialize like in the house. It's like, you know, hoax that folks. Well, you're like, seriously, come on. That's right. Yeah, the um, uh, Ken Llewellyn, the um, the investigator, uh, wing commander Ken Llewellyn, he was right in the next room uh, and he heard the truck driver say, "Oh my God!" The, the no sooner had um, he said, "Oh damn, I locked the keys in the truck," the woman said, "Don't worry, I'll get Matt, the mm. ghost, to uh, to get him," and crash, the keys just landed bang at his feet. And, uh, of course he, uh, yelled something and, uh, Ken ran in there and immediately photographed the keys and, uh, assessed the situation. So, yeah, um, uh, be nice to have a, uh, poltergeist that would be obliging. And, oh, in fact, do you remember that bit in the Mayanup, um, case where when the poltergeist first went to the Boyup Brook property, um, 
uh, it focused on um, young Harvey um, Dixon and his uh, his sister, and they drove into town. I know this story. Yeah, okay. Inspired the car as they drove into town, and then continued to fall in town as they did their shopping. Then they came back to the property, and the exact amount of money that they'd spent in the uh, bakery appeared on the kitchen table in front of them. So they said, well, that's when they, they started to call the the poltergeist Uncle Bobby at, uh, at that property. They said, well, thanks, Uncle Bob, um, because they brother of their father had died um, 10 years earlier, and they thought, well, it must be Uncle Bob. He's so, so obliging. Yeah. Crazy stuff. That's a, let's see, yeah. Like I said, folks, this book is packed with, uh, with great stories. And one of the things, we've talked about this, like, over the course, uh, of this conversation, it might be worth sort of exploring even further, is the, uh, in the case of the nice old man of Alice Springs, you have a story of a, a little girl who, who sees a ghost. That's the nice old man of, of Alice Springs. And it, it sort of raises the question of, you know, the line between poltergeists and ghosts and, what really may be going on yeah. here, and having read the book and sort of put more thought into the whole poltergeist phenomenon, I'm kind of starting to think that that we're dealing with like a Venn diagram situation here, or or sort of like uh, where all the elements need to come together in the right way, and it's 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 I think it's a mistake to necessarily just focus on disgruntled teenagers, but there's the chance that maybe the disgruntled teenagers are emitting some kind of energy. Maybe some kind of psychokinesis, but that in turn then unlocks, draws the attention of some kind of sentient spirit. So then next thing you know, you've got all kinds of stuff going on back and forth, which might explain why if they take the teenager out, things keep happening. You know, the spirit may be there and being like, hey, come back, where are you? You know, because... If you're on the other side, we don't know. Sometimes we ascribe this great intelligence to these to these entities, but who knows? They might be floating around, and they see some teenager that can do this stuff, and then they come over and they're like, "Hey, can I? Can you talk to me? Can we converse?" Like maybe there is there is confused and yeah. and, and having as much trouble making that connection as we are to them. So when they see these instances, maybe they see a burst of powerful energy or something they realize they can make the connection. That's kind of what I'm feeling might be going on here with the poltergeist. It's just some kind of like, some kind of um, bridge between the two worlds is, is opening accidentally. Yeah, I think you might be um, you might be right, you know. I mean, heaven knows we may never be able to prove it, but, but yeah, that's a, that's a very good theory, I think. It, it seems to, you know, mesh with the, the evidence uh, largely. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, a guy, Playfair, who, um, uh, a British uh, researcher, he wrote um, This House is Haunted, a famous book about the Enfield poltergeist. Um, he said, well, he doesn't pretend to know um, what poltergeists are. They seem to be extremely contrary and elusive and uncooperative. But um, he said what might happen, you know, just he, he, he sort of bounced an idea very similar to what you were saying. You know, he said, well, maybe... When, you know, one of these anguished adolescents, um, somehow is, um, stewing away, you know, on some project, they're all anguished, their hormones are racing and everything, they, they might somehow create a window or an opportunity or something to the other side. And, and these individuals might be naturally psychic, um, without knowing it. Right. Uh, and he said, he said, who knows, then maybe all manner of, um, 
disembodied uh, spirits, um, be they the um, spirits of deceased humans or something else entirely, um, sort of queue up to have a peek through or, or right, exactly. uh, somehow manipulate things and mess with the minds of the poor, poor hapless mortals on the other side. So, yeah, you're probably right. Something That's my feeling. It's something like that. Mm. I would say, but who knows? Yeah, it's a it's a very complex uh, phenomena, that's for sure. Just based on uh, based on the book here. Um, now, the Gyra Ghost is another massive story, so uh, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to sort of ask for a thumbnail on this. But I did find it interesting, though, because <laughs> uh, it's a, it's it's yeah. an epic tale. It really is. And folks, uh, it, I'm sure if you're from Australia, you've probably heard of the Gyra Ghost. Uh, and I think anyone who's sort of in the Ghost communities probably at least uh, heard a little bit about it, but I thought it was interesting based uh, on the reading of the case. Uh, what stuck out to me was that the the they it was just really remarkable in a way, and also very puzzling and, and frustrating is that they made a movie during the yeah. the infestation, um, but then uh, the movie well, disappeared after, just just after. I think. Okay, well with the, with the family though, I mean, it wasn't like because when I first was reading it, I thought they made a, yeah. a fictionalized movie, but then as I'm reading more about it, it's like, no, they were in the house, the family was in the movie, um, playing themselves, yeah. and then and then nothing ever happened, no one ever saw the movie as far as we know, no one knows where it is. Um, can you yeah. shed a little more light on that and what, what that's all about? Cause no. Um, it's bizarre. Frustratingly, no. Um, we call <laughs> it the mystery of the, the diary ghost mystery, because the, the, the film was allegedly just called The Gyra Ghost Mystery. Yeah, um, an impresario, um, I forget the guy's name, oh, Mr. Cosgrove, that's right, he arrived at the um, scene just after the whole business finished, and he, as you said, he supposedly um, made a film, a, a very brief film, I would imagine, this is 1921, uh, uh, reenacting the events, uh, and including, well, allegedly some or all of the family. Well, I would love to. I'd love to see it. Mm. And um, my ace researcher, Buddy uh, Paul, um, tried very, very hard to, to find out, um, you know, if this film was ever screened anywhere. Um, but um, evidently it wasn't. Uh, the, they did create a couple of posters to use as publicity, and we have an image of one of those in our um, in our book. Uh, here where I live in Canberra, there's the um, National Film and Sound Archive, and uh, if anyone would know about this film, it's them, and, and they don't. All they have is the um, one of the original posters. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's frustra- frustrating. That's so strange. But, um, yeah, um, there were, that's right, there was all kinds of some um, people involved in that. There was a, a friend, a good friend of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, who happened to be in Australia. Uh, he, he went there and he, um, he took over the house and, uh, created, took, took, made holes in the roof and walls and, uh, had uh, his employees stationed there watching and, the stones kept falling and flying. <laughs> I couldn't work out where the stones came from. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was a, a strange one, but and it went on. It, uh, actually, that only went on for what um, two or three months, I think. It, it's surprising, really, in a way that that um, Gyra Ghost became so notorious in Australia. I, I think it might have been just a, 
happenstance that um, that it occurred um, during a time of when there wasn't much news and uh, um, well, the police did get involved and and uh, and so on. Uh, it, but essentially, it, it was a uh, it wasn't uh, that didn't exhibit a great range of poltergeist activity. There were there were hundreds and hundreds of stones. Um, uh, raining on this house, but they were usually almost all from outside, uh, day and night. Uh, the house was circled by, by police and, uh, volunteers with rifles. They were shooting like mad in all directions at some stages. Uh, people were getting very jumpy. Uh, there were enormous great thumps on the walls, both internally and externally. The people stayed, the policeman stationed just outside the house, almost against the wall, said the sounds were coming from inside. And the policeman inside said, no, it's coming from outside. Mm. And it sounded like, you know, some giant with a giant sledgehammer was belting the daylights out of this house. So it was definitely a poltergeist event. Mm. But there were many, many aspects to it. And quite possibly, um, some of the stones were, um, fired uh, by kids, young blokes with um, slingshots at night. Right. It could have been, you know, because it was it was about a mile from the nearest village, so it's, it's possible. But um, uh, the the poor girl who seemed to be the focus, Minnie Bowen, was definitely troubled uh, and intense and strange. And according to her um, son, her sorry, her half brother, I suppose. Who, who she she raised uh, in later life? He said that um, in all the years after the um, event, she did possess the power to move objects just by looking at them. She could make um, chairs jump around and uh, make a piano play by itself. Um, so whether she possessed that ability then or, or whether she developed the psychic abilities as a result of being focused uh, on by the um, poltergeist, we, we don't know, but she was certainly a rather odd-looking little girl. And, yeah, there's a uh, picture of her in the book. Was, it's creepy. Yeah, yeah. Could, could be really <laughs> a lot of, a lot of creepy music. creepy pictures in that, now that I think about it, yeah. It, it, it is kind of creepy. I, I wonder if some newspaper artist kind of retouched it to make her look a bit weirder than she was, but but a lot of people did say that she had very strange, deep, dark, mystifying eyes, mm. and that she, she was only 11 years old, and that she would anticipate what people were going to say before they asked, and um, and had this way of just never smiling, very rarely smiling, and just looking straight through you, which... Well, as uh, I think we mentioned in the book, uh, the lady up at Northern Territory, the one, the mother of the child, and the the one who was almost always in the house and uh, seemed to be, if anyone was the focus, she was, Kirsty Argius. She had a kind of a strange way of looking at you too. She was she was a similar physical type. Not a, I mean, she was a good-looking woman, uh, but um, she had a a funny way of not smiling and just just looking at you in a rather unsettling manner. I, I thought, um, although she was friendly, she was friendly, but she no, I know what you mean, yeah. No doubt, 
no doubt she was probably thinking, oh, why don't these guys just leave me alone? <laughs> <laughs> well, you bring up a, yeah. you, you brought up an interesting thing that I had forgotten to put in my notes, and I'm glad uh, you sort of jogged this part of my memory. One, one recurring aspect I noticed from the book, too, was that it seems like when these objects are hitting like the wall or something, they're making yeah. noises that are far too incongruous to what they were, small objects. They're making like loud crashes uh, for little objects. Uh, that don't, it doesn't make any sense in a way. That's another thing that I notice that keeps happening in a lot of these cases. Let's talk a little bit about that because that's really weird. Yes, well, that's been noted um, overseas uh, in many countries in many cases. Um, but, yeah, um, yeah, the objects that hit the walls or the floor or whatever when we were there, they would make a, a distinct, like, whack, a really, you know, sharp, loud noise. you think, my God, you know, you'd see them bouncing off the walls and across the room, yet they never marked the walls. There was never a mark on the walls. <laughs> and... Um, um, the um, if when the, the uh, glass would smash, uh, the um, it would sound like uh, you know half a dozen glasses smashing, right. not just one. Um, and um, uh, in uh, I, I can't say we noticed this at um, Humpy Doo, although we did notice. Well, for instance, that object I saw materialise out of thin air. It, it landed on a table right in front of me with a, a sort of deadfall, just a thump. It didn't bounce as it, you I would have expected. But uh, in in Mayanup and many other cases, um, whereas some objects make a hell of a loud noise, much louder than you would have expected, other objects make uh, a much milder noise. Like um, stones, uh, heavy stone will land. Uh, in front of someone and, and just sound like a ball of putty landing on the, uh, on the ground. And if anyone's ever hit by these stones, it feels like, you know, they've, they've again been hit by a, a ball of putty or, or something soft. Um, very rarely are people hurt. Uh, occasionally, uh, people get a bit of a, a bruise, but, but very rarely, I mean, uh, it seems as if something is preventing these entities from hurting people, mm. which is um, just as well because, as that lady said in Alice Springs, well, if um, if this if the old man who's haunting the place wanted to kill me, he could just push me down the stairs, but he, he won't do it. All he did was throw rolled up socks at people and uh, yeah. and uh, grapefruit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, it makes you makes you it makes the story more complex. It makes it more puzzling because it seems like they're yeah. they're they're uh, beholden to some kind of rules or some kind of uh, limits, maybe. But who knows? Who knows what what they're up to? Well, on the subject of noises, you talked a little bit about this, but maybe just sort of uh, flesh it out some more for folks. Um, Dr. Barry Colvin and the acoustic analysis of the knocks, because that's another thing, sort of like oh, the yeah. thermal imaging. You know, we have yeah. to use what we, you know, in this field, we have to use what we're given. And so the knocks and the stones are really all that these things provide. So we have to try and use that to figure things out. And, and uh, you know, hats off to this guy for even coming up with this idea. Um, I guess talk a little bit about what he found and, and maybe 
you know, if, if there's anything more to that that, that might be going on, uh, you know, talk talk about that. Yeah, well, um, uh, I haven't been in touch with him uh, personally, but I've, I've just read his um, papers and so on uh, uh, in the Journal for Society for Psychical Research Journal. Um, uh, yeah, in fact, I'm just I'm, I'm reading this out of our book actually, so I don't get it wrong. <laughs> um, he acoustically analysed recordings of rappings from ten different poltergeist sites that is, many different areas, different countries over many years, hmm. and came up with uh, interesting results. He found that when normally produced wrappings are analysed, the loudest part of the sound is invariably at the very beginning, after which the sound gradually decays. Uh, Poltergeist-produced raps, however, begin relatively quietly before building up to their maximum volume. And the pattern of um, the sound, in fact, indicated that sounds arose from within the structure of the material rather than from its surface. And, uh, of course, this accords with the testimony of many witnesses. Um, it's important to note that the 10 recordings tested by Dr. Colvin were recorded at various sites around the world on different types of apparatus between 1960 and 2000 yet they all exhibited the same anomalous acoustic profile. So, um, uh, as um, Alan Murdy, uh, a British Ghostbuster, um, points out, um, uh, hoaxes back in the 1960s and 1970s couldn't possibly have had the advanced knowledge to create or to fake this effect, which is detectable only by instrumental analysis developed decades later. So, right. Yeah, his, uh, Dr. Colvin's work is, is, is very important, I think. Absolutely, yeah. Like I said, uh, alongside the thermal imaging stuff, that's a, that's something we can really sink our teeth into and we really need another sort of, uh, Humpty Dew case where we can, where we can get in there and maybe try some of this new yeah. stuff out, but, but who knows? Well, chances yeah. are, I, for, for my sake, I hope you find it, not me. That's, I guess, well, I. Oh, well. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, uh, I'm not sure that I want to go to a lot more poltergeist uh, <laughs> sites, you know. Um, I don't want to have one of these things follow me home. That's uh, what I was going to ask but, you. Did, uh, did anything, after you went there, uh, did anything Did anything happen, you know, when you went home or anything like that? Did you ever have any feeling uh, that you well, brought something home with you? Well, I don't think so. Um, like, we, we, we were aware that... Um, um, it's not a great idea to um, souvenir any of the stones or um, objects and take them home with you. Uh, that might uh, induce the uh, poltergeist to follow you. That's what uh, Harvey Dixon at um, Boy Up Brooks thinks happened um, in um, uh, in his case. But um, so we didn't. But uh, and uh, Paul uh, lives in Sydney. We talk on the phone all the time, and uh, both of us. Um, <laughs> said that uh, for the first couple of weeks after we got back here, whenever um, we heard a sharp noise or something fell off the table or whatever around the house, we jumped uh, a couple of feet in the air thinking, oh my God, it's it's, it's followed me, it's followed me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there was a couple of strange things happened. Uh, we have a, um, a granny flat, as they call it, attached to our house here, and there's a, an old uh, elderly lady who lives in there, been there for many years, and there was a couple of funny things happening there. Um, uh, I'm not sure it was probably natural. We had light bulbs exploding. A whole lot of light bulbs exploded, and 
and then the plate, um, she had the plate in, a, in the microwave, took it out, put it on the bench, and four hours later, four hours later, the plate exploded. Oh, weird. Well, now, I, I don't know about microwaves, but maybe that, maybe there's an explanation, but at the time I thought, oh, oh, yeah. oh maybe it's our friend, but, but, uh, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't put any, uh, in it, uh, really. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like you you managed to come out unscathed. The last case I wanted to ask you about, which uh, you noted earlier, is the creepiest case in the book. That's the the coal baggy bogey, which is just like it goes even further and deeper into the strange, the strange stuff, and really unsettling. Like you, I, I think you can get used to uh, objects falling around you. It seems like some of these folks did. I mean, obviously that's annoying and can be really frightening at times, but this coal baggy bogey was, was this spirit that was talking to the people in the house and, and, and really telling them like crazy stuff. And later they, they claim he was like a, it was appearing as animals and stuff. And you tie that into this, this, uh, I guess you would call it a legend or something called the, the kobold, um, from yeah. Germany, which is which is ascribed to the poltergeist often. So uh, so sort of uh, we'll bring it all together here with the coal baggy bogey and how it might connect to the cobalt. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, this um, the particular family that was being uh, haunted uh, or afflicted that was in um, 1891 to 94, it lasted three years. Uh, they were um, of um, German extraction. At least the patriarch of the family was. As I said, a hard-headed, practical, frugal German. Uh, and he had an enormous property, um, 2,500 acres, in fact, two properties, uh, of that size. And with his son and, um, extended family started settling in, all kinds of weird stuff started happening, um, uh, including fires, that, um, they, they had a hell of a lot of difficulty keeping these fires, um, under control. And, um, uh, yes, um, uh, they claimed um, there's a extensive interview with his son, uh, as well as testimony from other people. But um, an extended, extensive interview with his son. His son uh, rode a horse into the nearest um, town and went to the newspaper office and said, "Look, I'd like to just get this story straight because you know people are talking about what's happening out at our place, and I'd just like to assure you it's really happening." Um, Anyway, yeah, the, um, this, um, this voice started, um, talking to the whole family and, um, uh, swearing. Sometimes it would swear, uh, foully and upset the, um, the mother and daughter, daughters. And, um, other times it would be as nice as pie, singing, um, singing songs and, uh, joking. Uh, it smashed, uh, the, um, they said a hundred pounds worth of, um, of uh, furniture and uh, cutlery and other things. There was a lot of money in those days, um, tens of thousands of dollars worth. Um, um, and he, he threatened to burn the house down. Um, he uh, he would do tricks like, uh, as they said, um, juggling tomahawks um, like like an invisible Indian juggler. And, uh, lifting up a frying pan, um, breaking six eggs in it and cooking the eggs for them, <laughs> uh, while the family sat there at a dog. Uh, he'd lift the table up while they were sitting around it and so on. Anyway, the, um, the son said that he was sitting with his mother in the, um, in the parlor one time and, um, 
they saw a funny little man. Uh, fireplaces in those days were very large, of course, and this, this figure about the size of a uh, small child, but with a wizened face and a, and a beard, uh, like an old man, was in the fireplace, um, starting to come out, and um, Jacob made a lunge for him, and he, he disappeared. Uh, then they started to see all kinds of funny creatures around, like a, a koala bear on the wall inside the house, which disappeared in a puff of smoke when they they went for it. Uh, wallabies that acted very strangely and uh, that disappeared when the dogs chased them, just plain disappeared. And the uh, the uh, disembodied voice said, "Those animals you're seeing, that's me. I can appear at any form I like." You can't, you can't chase me. You can't hurt me. I'm going to <clears throat> dog your steps wherever you go. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Scared. Yeah. He said, "Yeah, you might want to leave it." Anyway, the, this all this menacing stuff and the voice um, is mirrored almost exactly in the um, the Dag case from um, from Canada that Paul has recently uh, been working on uh, with Christopher Lawrenson, a um, Canadian guy that put together a big article on it. Um, the uh, the Dag case was similar, making these terrible threats, singing and carrying on, and um, and it too. Uh, in in its case, um, oh, wait a minute, I'm, I don't want to misremember here. I can't remember if the the Dag demon appeared physically or not. But the uh, but another case that was very similar was the um, uh, the um, the witch case from uh, Tennessee. The, the Bell Witch. The Bell Witch. The Bell Witch was the same. It it, uh, it would sting and uh, threaten people, swipe their faces. It was quite malicious, and um, it eventually um, allegedly appeared, and um, it would appear as a demon-like creature, and then uh, alternatively as an angelic-like creature. Oh, weird. So, so this cold baggy bogey has um, uh, a lot of features in common with both the Bell Witch and... Um, the Dag case, and uh, I cannot see how it would be possible for this pioneering family in this remote part of Australia to know anything about either of those cases. Oh, and, and as you alluded, um, the, um, the, the being the, that the patriarch was of German extraction, uh, it struck me. I'd, I'd read about this creature, the Kobold, K-O-B-O-L-D, uh, which is a kind of a, an elf-like uh, creature that um, uh, in those days people from Germany uh, for ages, many centuries, had believed in the existence of these kobolds, which are, um, there were three types. There were ones that accompanied sailors on ships or infested ships, others that lived down in the mines, and others that were household kobolds. And um, uh, they... I, I googled a whole lot of stuff and read an article, a long article about um, kobolds. Um, they were household spirits, although usually invisible, could take the form of human-like figures the size of small children. They were neither boy nor man, but had characteristic, characteristics of both. They usually lived in the hearth area of the house and sometimes entered and exited through the chimney. Well, this is from a, a compendium of uh, German folklore. Well, as you, as you just readily see, that's pretty well exactly what um, young Jacob said, that he saw uh, 
little figure with a beard, size of a child, um, in the hearth, in the fireplace. Um, in Germany, it was believed that kobolds were deceivers and flatterers, fond of teasing their mortal housemates, but they felt, in fact, that they were the master of any house they infested, and wrote, well, woe betide anyone who offended them. Then they might throw stones, break windows and pots and pans, etc. So... <laughs> <laughs> they become yeah, a poltergeist. Um, <laughs> yeah, in uh, Islamic countries, it is widely believed, I mean, still today, very, very widely believed throughout Saudi Arabia and uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Indonesia, um, that poltergeist activity is um, caused by um, entities called uh, jinn, D-J-I-N-N, uh, which are you know, that's anglicised to genies, right? Um, the, um, the, the, the plural, the, the singular of genie is genie, or genie. And uh, when Paul visited the family in Turkey and the one in uh, Malaysia, um, they all said, well, obviously there are genie in the house. These genies are in the house doing this. So um, poltergeist activity is rationalised, I suppose, and explained in different ways from culture to culture, but the physical effects are the same. Yeah, it's very interesting. It makes you wonder, as we dig further into history and different cultures and learn more about other people's, other cultures' history, it seems like these dots are starting to connect, which is remarkable stuff. Yeah. Now, we're, we're sort of here at the end of the, at the end of the conversation, and I wanted to sort of put a perfect capstone on it, because I loved the, uh, I was just sort of put myself in the place. There's a case in the book, uh, in the list of cases called the Yanyari case. And it's a, someone, you tell the story of how there's an article in the newspaper about it. And then there's, you know, a counter article from someone who, who, you know, is a skeptic, I believe. And then, then it goes back and forth. And you said it goes, there's a continuous back and forth between believers and disbelievers and skeptics and people who witnessed it and stuff like that. And then, to the point where finally, you said they got they got more and more convoluted these these counter arguments. Till the editor finally just wrote, "The discussion must end here." I just I just love that. I'm imagining this exasperated editor after like weeks of printing these long letters about the about the Yanyari poltergeist. He was finally like, "You know what? Enough's enough. We're just gonna we're just gonna let it go." Yeah, yeah. I guess, um, well, you know, I guess we can all relate to that to an extent. I mean, sometimes it does get a little bit much. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh it's like God. this guy got a glimpse of the of the internet, uh, <laughs> of an internet message board, way back in the distant past. But that that's sort of the good capstone to end uh, to end our discussion on the poltergeist. What's next for you, Tony? What do you got? Are you working on any other future projects? What's going on with Paul? I know he couldn't make it tonight, um, but you know what's. What's cooking for you guys? What kind of projects you're working on? Give me a little update also on the Yowie research because, uh, you oh, know, I'm okay. fascinated by that. Okay. So, so sort of wrap well, us um, up here. Yeah, I've got a few things going. Um, I hope I live long enough to finish them all up. I'll be 70 uh, this year. Uh, oh, my God, really? Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, you know, the, uh, the wizard of Oz. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, um, I'm heading off the um, uh, day after tomorrow for um, Tasmania. Um to chase the, um, you know, the Tasmanian tiger, the mysterious Tasmanian tiger, thylacine, marsupial wolf sort of thing, striped uh, creature. It's um, nobody's been able to prove since 1936 that there's any still existing, but it's a 
an island the size of um, uh, Sri Lanka, um, uh, and uh, there's only half a million people in the whole island. Uh, uh, enormous forests still there, and um, great mountains. So um, uh, people, hundreds of people, say they've seen them since 1936. Um, I was down there with an expedition um, at the end of 19, uh, 2013, and uh, we talked to a dozen people who said they've seen them in recent years. So um, I'm going back down there with a, a group of people, uh, and uh, we'll. Uh, I'll spend about six weeks there and put out a lot of trail cameras and uh, interview people and trudge around uh, putting out uh, baits, uh, you know, to attract them, nothing to poison them, of course. Yeah, um, nice, yeah. And um, after that, when I get back, we'll we'll, we'll be um, publicising the Australian Poltergeist book here in Australia for, the, for a couple of months because it, it won't be in the Australian bookstores until March oh, nice. because of the delay. But uh, Paul, um, uh, we're working on a, a second book about the Yowie. Uh, Paul, in his uh, inimitable style, has um, has dug up scores of um, additional colonial era awesome. uh, Yowie sighting reports. I love it. Big hairy ape man. Uh, they're um, they're some of them are quite good. They date back to the nineteen uh, the eighteen well, was the, the earliest one? I think eighteen twenties now, early eighteen twenties. Wow. Uh, which is only you know, as you can imagine, that's only a few years after the uh, British settlers got here. Uh, so, so we're going to put together a source book. Um, you remember the old um, uh, William uh, Corliss source book project? He had a whole um, library of source books of strange phenomena. So we're, this is going to be sort of like a tribute to him, and uh, it'll be similar, just a source book for other researchers. Uh, then we're doing a similar one on Australian water monster mysteries, the so-called bunyip. Mm, uh, nice. And um, I'm um, going to be working on my uh, a memoir of my uh, 40-odd years, of 40 very odd years <laughs> of, um, of chasing various things. Oh, I would love there. that. Yeah. Sounds like you got a lot going on. This is awesome, man. We we got. I can't wait another seven years to have you on the show. So we uh, we have to keep in better oh, well, touch. Uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll test you before then. I'll, <laughs> I hope so. I'll be, I'll be uh, emailing plaintively asking for uh, uh, another talk. But uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be uh, fresh material. I'll. Um, yeah, keep me posted when new stuff comes out, or just uh, we'll have to do some reconnecting anyway uh, to talk about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. for sure, Mike, for sure. Look, I really appreciate you know, all your time, and, and I do I do appreciate how thoroughly you've read the book. I mean, I, I just hope that everyone who buys the book reads it half as thoroughly as you have, because, um, you know, you, you've really got into it. You've uh, you really appreciated it, and, and I appreciate that. Oh, man, it was uh, the pleasure was all mine. Tony, the pleasure was all mine. I loved the book, and uh, I wanted to convey to the folks listening just how remarkable this book is and really how captivating it is, and it's awesome. And I hope they go out and pick it up because they'll learn a lot about the poltergeist phenomenon. They'll get a real glimpse of sort of the Australian culture for the American listeners. You know, you get a real glimpse of life in a different different world, really. And so it's it's a doubly... Uh, delightful book. So, Australian Poltergeist, The Stone-Throwing Spook of Humpty Doo, and many other cases. And if they want more information, 
uh, they should head on over to poltergeistfile.com. That's the website that you and Paul have for the book. Lots yeah. of amazing stuff on there as well that we didn't even get into. Tony, I really, really, really appreciate you coming back on the show and giving us so much time. And, um, and I really appreciate the work that you and Paul did on this book. It's outstanding. I, I really mean that. Oh, I put o- I put over a lot of books on the show uh, because if I don't like a book, I don't have the guest on, quite frankly. But uh, when I have a guest on with an amazing book, I, I really feel compelled to tell the listeners to go out and get it. And with this book, that is absolutely the case. Australian Poltergeist, The Stone-Throwing Spook of Humpty Doo, and many other cases. Many other cases, folks, we didn't even get into at all that are just just, just yeah. jammed in there. The five-star case, especially the... Uh, the buying up episode is huge, and also the Gyra ghost story is also huge, and we didn't even touch on those really. We only scratched the surface, like uh, like poltergeist ourselves. So uh, go out and pick up the book, folks. Australian poltergeist Tony, I'm gonna definitely have you back on the show again. Please give my best to Paul, and thank you so much for uh, returning to BOA Audio. Oh well, thank you, Tim. It's been a real pleasure, mate. Uh, I do appreciate it. Uh... Oh, well, we'll hopefully talk to you again soon, eh? Absolutely, my friend.